Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. Dr. Sandro Galea says we're not taking the best approach to health care in the United States. We need to accept that health is a public good. From the New England News Collaborative, this is Next. Galea talks about the impact of poverty and racism on public health and how we should prepare for the next pandemic. Plus, green burials are surging in popularity. If you've been an environmentalist your whole life, you would want to be an environmentalist in your death. And so green burial does make a lot of sense in that way. And we'll talk with author Rebecca Carroll about her memoir, Surviving the White Gaze. It details her experiences as a black child raised by adoptive white parents in rural New Hampshire. It was the world that my parents created the way they wanted it to look without any indication of race beyond me. It's next. Next is produced at Connecticut Public Radio and is powered by the New England News Collaborative, 10 public media companies coming together to tell the story of a changing region with support from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. I'm Morgan Springer. Thanks for joining us. Compared to the rest of the U.S., New England states are doing pretty darn good at vaccinating residents against COVID-19. That's according to data from the CDC. If we're talking about total doses administered for every 100,000 people, New England states are at the top. Half of the residents are already fully vaccinated in Maine and Connecticut, with Vermont, Rhode Island, and Massachusetts close behind. So the region is opening up for business. By Memorial Day, each of the New England states will have lifted some or all COVID restrictions. For many people, the feeling of hope is building. And some thinkers are looking even farther into the future and considering how we can avoid the next pandemic. Dr. Sandra Galea is doing that. He's dean of the Boston University School of Public Health and author of the forthcoming book, The Contagion Next Time, which will be released in the fall. Dr. Galea, welcome to Next. Thank you for having me. So before we get into the future, there's this story you tell that highlights the challenges in our public health system um, in the past that have carried on into the present. Can you tell us the story of Willie Johnson? Yeah, so um, Blind Willie Johnson was a blues singer, and uh, he uh, anybody who knows the blues will recognize the name because we remember a number of his songs. And he was born in Texas at the turn of the 20th century. And uh, he was born sighted, and the story is that he lost his vision in a domestic violence incident in, um, when he was a child. So he grew up poor and black and blind in Texas. He got married and was living uh, with his wife in a small house, and the house burned down. And they didn't have any money, so after the house finished burning, they went back to live in the ashes of, the, of what used to be their house. He made a very modest living, uh, busking, as you can imagine. And in the 1940s, so this is when he uh, was in his early 40s, Blind Willie Johnson got malaria. Now, malaria was not that uncommon in the 40s in Texas at the time. In fact, the Centers for Disease Control, for example, was uh, started to help control malaria in the southern states. And his wife took him to hospital, and he was turned away from hospital. 
Now, it's not clear if he was turned away because he was poor, because he was black, or because he was blind, but then he died. Now, the question is, what killed blind Willie Johnson? And what killed him was malaria. He died of malaria. Had he received treatment for malaria, he would not have died. But the reason I tell the story is because when you listen to the story, you realize, well, malaria did kill him, but it wasn't just malaria, right? It was racism, and it was poverty, and it was domestic violence, and it was poor access to care and homelessness. All these forces also contributed to his dying. Had he not died of malaria on that day, he would have died of something else the next day or the next day. And when, when we understand that, it makes it clear that if we only invest in treating malaria, we are never going to help blind Willie Johnson live a longer and healthier life, which really tells us that to create longer and healthier lives for all of us, we need to invest in everything else, not just treatment. It doesn't say that we should not invest in treatment, but that we need to see treatment as part of a larger picture. So how does Willie Johnson's story apply to public health today? I think the blind Willie Johnson story applies to health broadly in every way. And if we just take it to the COVID moment for a second, we have been very successful in creating vaccines for COVID. And one can think of vaccines for COVID as the treatment for malaria. And we have it's really been an extraordinary success story. In 10 months, we've had efficacious vaccines when the fastest we had ever developed vaccines before was about four years. So that is the result of our investment in the technology. But the reason that COVID was handled as poorly as it, as it was, the reason that our country, the US, had, had the highest rate of COVID per person, isn't because of the treatment, it's because of the other forces. It's because we were not prepared to create conditions that protect people from risk. It's because we had a society which had underlying health conditions that come from the, the risks that we had accumulated over time. And all of those conspired to making COVID much more severe than it needed to be. It's because we had underinvested in the conditions that make us healthy that resulted in COVID being the really the challenge that it was for the country, despite the fact that our investment in the treatment, in this case the vaccine, really paid off. So what I'm understanding you saying is that we're putting a primary focus on investing in treatments and research that directly target specific health issues rather than these broader structural issues that are just as impactful. Is that right? I think the, the only edit I would make to that, if I may, is that you use the word health issues. I would actually argue that these structural issues are health issues. I would actually argue that having structural racism that prohibits particular groups of people, particular racial identities from participating fully in society. These are structural issues that trace back over generations and over centuries. And I would argue that they are health issues. I would argue that wealth inequity is a health issue because wealth inequity leads directly to health inequity. That's a great edit. So I'm curious because it seems like from your perspective, we need to take a more holistic approach to investing in lots of different sectors, whether it's the economy, addressing racism, addressing lots of different sorts of inequities. Are there people who disagree with you? And, and what is their argument? Yeah, it's an excellent question. I'm not sure that there is much disagreement. I, I find I talk to all sorts of smart, rational people all the time who, when, when we have a conversation like this one, they will generally say, okay, I, I understand that. I, I think it is simply different 
than how we have been used to thinking. The critique that often happens is, well, what you're suggesting costs money and the money has to come from somewhere. And fundamentally, we should think of this as a zero-sum game that we're going to take some money from somewhere else, which then makes these ideas untenable. But, but I disagree. I, I actually think that the cost consequences of not paying attention to our health far dwarf the cost that we could spend um, by doing this right. I mean, to give one concrete example, of course, is in time of COVID. The, the, the global estimates are still to come in, but it's clear that we are losing trillions in the world economy because we, of course, let COVID get out of hand the way it did. And we, we need to spend substantially less than that to prevent COVID from being the challenge that it was to this country and by extension to the world. There are a number of things that fall out from this thinking. If you really grapple with this thinking, it says we need to accept that health is a public good. We need to accept that we need to embrace an imperative for health. We need to accept that you and I need to say health should exist as a animating value and that when we are designing transportation policy and, f- and fiscal policy and housing policy, we should make sure that we keep in mind what impact that has on health. And that is not so much a new cost as much as it is a new orientation, a new way of thinking. Do you think COVID has significantly changed the way we think and, and put more people on the same page that you're on now? I hope so. I, I do think so. I, and, I, and, and I think so from an optimistic point of view, but hopefully I'm also being realistic about it. I, I do think that there is a lot more attention to a number of these forces than there was a year and a half ago. Now, the question becomes, once we get over it, uh, will we will we forget? To go back to the Blind Willie Johnson analogy, if we did treat Blind Willie Johnson with malaria um, treatment and uh, then he's over with malaria, are we then going to forget all the other conditions that inevitably are going to mean he's going to come back to hospital with pneumonia tomorrow or with something else the next day? So I, I think the trick really is to keep this conversation going. And you introduced, when you introduced me, you mentioned my book, The Contagion Next Time. And this is the thesis of that book. The thesis of that book really is we cannot forget that what we experienced as a country in COVID was a product of these underlying forces, that as we move beyond COVID, in order to prepare for the next contagion, we actually need to think about all the forces that ultimately made us so vulnerable to the consequences of COVID. Yeah, okay, so let's move forward to that point. Like, what are some concrete steps that need to be taken in the coming months and years to actually make that happen? I actually am quite heartened by a number of steps that have been taken in uh, the new administration in the past few months in that fundamentally, I think we need to look at what is it that can create livable wages, sustainable housing, clean air, drinkable water, safe neighborhoods for all Americans. What is it that we need to do to create those? And I do think that investments in infrastructure, investments in education, investments in in lifelong opportunities for people to have training to make sure that they have jobs, investments in ways to to reduce violence, investments in ways to make sure that uh, we are elevating people of all identities, be it gender identity, be it racial identity, be it socioeconomic identity, be it immigrant identity. Those are fundamentally the, what we need to do in order to create the a world where we live longer, healthier lives. Now, there's many arguments to be made why we want to do that anyway. I mean, you can make a moral argument, you can make a values argument, you can make a, a uh, argument about the animating forces behind the country. But I actually don't think we need to make those arguments. I think there's a health argument to be made. And the point I'm trying to make is that 
if we want to live, if we want our children to live longer, healthier lives, we have no choice but to invest in these other forces. And I actually think that we, we are starting to see a lot of those ideas emerge at the federal level when really they haven't been, been there at all in the past 30, 40 years. Dr. Sandra Galea is the dean of the Boston University School of Public Health and author of the new book, The Contagion Next Time, which will be released in the fall. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. The COVID relief bill that President Joe Biden signed into law earlier this year is designed to give a boost to Americans struggling in the pandemic. Among the lesser-known measures tucked into the $1.9 trillion bill is special financial assistance to save more than 200 failing pension plans. Now, as Connecticut Public Radio's Brenda Leon reports, some people in those plans are breathing a collective sigh of relief. Musician Bill Whitaker says he and his wife never expected a lavish retirement. Obviously, you work for a very long time and you like to be thinking that you're putting money away. So when you do retire, that you've worked long and hard and that you have money that, you know, you can retire on. Before the pandemic shut down Broadway, Whitaker would drive every week from his home in Connecticut to New York City, where he performed in Phantom of the Opera as a bass trombonist. For 19 years, this was his main gig. But like many other professional musicians, he performed in many other musical groups like brass and chamber ensembles. He worked on recordings and often performed with the Hartford Symphony Orchestra. And I've been paying into the pension fund. There have been contributions made on my behalf in the pension fund since 1987. Contributions that came from Whitaker's various employers are placed into a multi-employer pension plan. Many workers who hustle between different employers have this type of plan. Artists, teamsters, carpenters, and roofers all participate in multi-employer pension plans. They're created through an agreement between employers and a union in the industry. In Whitaker's case, the American Federation of Musicians. Ray Hare is the AFM's international president. He explains that the Musicians' Pension Plan was created in 1959, and it did well for many years especially during the 1990s. But Hare says changing tax laws and the financial crisis of 2008 left the pension funds in deep trouble. By 2009, the pension fund for working musicians was in the red zone, meaning in critical and declining status. By 2019, it looked like the pension plan could fail. Thousands of musicians began receiving letters stating their pensions could face dramatic cuts. And then in March of 2020, here comes the COVID pandemic. The COVID pandemic brought the employment of musicians to a standstill. Uh, overnight, uh, practically, you know, 90% of our members became unemployed. And musicians weren't the only workers whose pension funds faced possible failure. Norman Stein teaches pension law at Drexel University. He says there are many reasons these different multi-employer pension funds were in trouble, but he sees certain common denominators, including changes in certain industries where you see fewer workers entering the workforce. All of a sudden, didn't have as many active workers as they did retirees. Right? So you have retirees who are currently drawing down uh, the assets of the fund, and unlike the expectation, I mean, the idea behind multi-employer plans is that there will always be new employees coming in to replace the ones who retire. Retiree, workers, union leaders and employers began asking the government for help. 
And now, buried into President Biden's coronavirus relief package is $86 billion in funding to save failing multi-employer pension plans. It's called the Butch Lewis Emergency Pension Relief Act. The passage of this bill, with a long struggle uh, to get it to the point that we are now, is the greatest victory for organized labor in the last 50 years. That's John Murphy. He's the vice president for the International Brotherhood of Teamsters. Murphy explains that troubled multi-employer pension plans can now apply to a government agency called the Pension Benefit Guarantee Corporation for the money to pay out pensions that were promised to workers. An approval of the application by the PBGC will receive uh, enough money to pay all benefits due over the next 30 years by each eligible plan, thereby relieving uh, tremendous financial pressure on these plans and allowing them to become healthy. And the money comes in forms of grants that won't have to be repaid. Murphy estimates more than a million retirees' pensions will be saved. And over time, that number will increase to 3 million, not only helping individual workers, but also their local economies. They will put that money into the local economy, um, which uh, creates uh, revenue for the businesses, creates jobs. So it's uh, a, a boon across the board for everybody. Some Republicans in Congress were not pleased by the inclusion of this pension relief in President Biden's bill, arguing that the bailout of multi-employer pension plans doesn't include provisions to make sure this never happens again. But supporters say this is a first step, one that can be improved upon in the coming years. As he plays his trombone, Bill Whitaker hopes for healthy pension investments for the next 30 years. And he anticipates bright stage lights when the time is right. Like I said, still cautiously optimistic this will all work out, but it definitely is moving in the right direction. It looks very good and and, uh, yes, very, very happy. And it is moving in the right direction. Phantom of the Opera has just announced it will open its doors on Broadway this October. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Brenda Leon. After the break, author and cultural critic Rebecca Carroll talks about growing up under the white gaze. As a black child in an adoptive white family in rural New Hampshire, one of the whitest states in the country. Plus, green burials are surging in popularity. It's next. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. Loneliness can be a significant health risk to people of all ages. Dr. Laura Saunders, a psychologist from Hartford HealthCare's Institute of Living, talks about social isolation and why we need to connect in person. Loneliness actually is a pretty significant health risk for people that struggle with social isolation. It affects their blood pressure, it affects their immune system, it affects your willingness to get up and get out and can cause some not just emotional issues, but health problems as well. You're not alone. Dr. Saunders explains how important it is for us to look to others and get out of our comfort zone. 
I like to talk about social isolation as not just that individual's problem, but it's a community problem or it's a family problem. We need to connect with others. We can take space at times as well, but we need to step out of our comfort zone and do things to connect with other people. It's life-saving. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage including the Common Sense Fund, supporting the New England News Collaborative in its coverage of climate change and the evolving clean energy economy. Support also comes from Douglas Stone and Mary Schwab Stone through the Smart Family Foundation of New York. Welcome back. I'm Morgan Springer. Rebecca Carroll's new memoir is called Surviving the White Gaze. In it, she describes her experiences as a Black child raised by adoptive white parents in rural New Hampshire. Rebecca is a cultural critic and host of the podcast Come Through, and she joins us now to talk about her book. Rebecca, welcome to Next. Thank you so much for having me. So let's begin with your adoption story. Um, Can you tell us how you came to be adopted by your parents? Sure. My parents were young, white, liberal, idealistic art students who met at, a, at the museum school in Boston and married very young and started a family right away um, and had two biological children. My dad found a job in New Hampshire teaching high school art where he had two students who were transplants from Boston a brother-sister team, and the uh, sister became pregnant with her boyfriend back in Boston, who was a black man, and she didn't really have a plan at 17, and my parents wanted to have another child and expand their family, uh, and they suggested perhaps they could adopt her child, and that's the sort of, (laughs) that's the short, quick and dirty version. Yeah, so you're adopted, and, and you describe your childhood in the book as kind of initially idyllic, but then Absolutely. you started, you know, being a target of racism in the community that you were in. Are you comfortable sharing, like, that transition and what started happening or what you started noticing at a certain age? Sure. So, you know, after that job and at that high school, in a different part of New Hampshire, my parents moved the family to another part of New Hampshire, an even smaller rural town, where I was the only black, became the first and only black resident at, you know, three months old or something like that. And we lived in this beautiful farmhouse on top of a dirt hill road with acres of land behind us where my brother would camp. And we had gardens with fresh vegetables and a swing set and dinners outside. My mom was super attentive and super creative. And all of our friends wanted to come over. My brother's best friend referred to it, the Carol's house where kids are king. It just was really an extraordinary experience. It was completely bucolic. It's why I open with that setting because it essentially was the white gaze. It was the world that my parents created the way they wanted it to look without any indication of race beyond me. And there wasn't any real connective tissue. There wasn't any real conversation. It was all play and creative and art and love. And so when we moved to another house, sort of on the closer to town, And I started the first grade, and when we moved from that bucolic setting, my brother and sister were able to sort of take 
what resonated for them, the security of that bubble into the world. But for me, I couldn't take that same security because it wouldn't protect me from what began pretty quickly to be a series of, you know, racist encounters and events. And I was sort of thrust into this world of being targeted and not understanding really why and how to navigate that. And so it started to feel really... mm, discombobulating. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you write about this moment where you and your friend are going out to recess and the teacher says something to the effect of, you're pretty for a black girl. And and this this other history teacher who made a suggestion about intelligence. And like in these just terrible moments, did anyone step up for you, defend you at those times? So the, it's, I think, really important to note that my fifth grade teacher did say to me, you're very pretty for a black girl. That's, that's what I understood and heard and was the racist comment from the outset. But what I internalized was worse than that, which is what she said afterwards, which is that most black girls are ugly are very unattractive. And she made this face as if she had, you know, smelled something rancid. That's what I internalized that did the most damage, that that was most indicative of what the white gaze will do. And, you know, later in high school, you know, it wasn't just the, the moment in class where my history teacher questioned my intelligence because I'm black. He was also the father of a boy who was a friend of mine who forbid him to take me to the prom as friends because he, he told his son, my friend, that he wouldn't want to look back at pictures and see that he'd taken a black girl. Like that would be a real tragedy to look back and see that you wasted this important moment in your life by, by bringing a black girl. And I think that in terms of, you know, stepping up, I don't think that any of my white peers had any sense of how to do that. I had a couple of friends who were sort of who kind of came to the right to the precipice, right to the, you know, to that moment of like, so, what do you mean by that, you know, to the teacher or, you know, and then the moment is gone and then it becomes irrelevant once again. And that's a choice that my white peers could make, but I could not, you know, like that, those kinds of incidents, you know, they didn't just happen. They bore into my psyche and into my sense of self and into, you know, the shaping of who I was, you know, and that, and these are just the incidents that I recall, right. You know, what, as I was vetting this book, I reached out to my sister to ask her if she remembered this this one incident. I think it was actually the high school one where my boss called me the N-word. Um, and I said, do you remember? Da, 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 da. And she said, no, but I definitely remember when so-and-so threw you into the deep end of the water and called you the N-word and walked away. Like this happened, like an actual racist hate crime happened when I was like seven or eight years old that I only remember as this sort of mean older girl offering to take me out into the water, into the, you know, to the deep water. Ooh, that's exciting because little girls are not supposed to go out there. And then arriving at the deep water and dropping me in the water to drown. But what I did not know is that after she dropped me to drown, I couldn't hear her because I was drowning, was that she then called me the N-word in front of everybody. And it sounds like your parents, you were not having conversations about race and racism in the household and your parents were not 
walking through these moments with you. No, they definitely weren't. And, you know, I think that there was also the sense of I did not want to puncture this kind of bubble that they had created for all of us, right? Like that, that it would be somehow inconvenient, you know? I mean, that's, again, why I open with that chapter where my dad is like, look how lucky we are. Look how beautiful this is. Like he created this scape, that, this landscape and this way of living that was beautiful, but it wasn't beautiful for me once I stepped outside of it and had to sort of navigate the way in which people were responding to me, the way in which racism works in America, which is the, is the same for every black person in this country. And, you know, it's, it happens, it starts early and then, you, you know, you have incident after incident. It's macro, it's micro, but it's always there. You mentioned the white gaze. Your memoir is called Surviving the White Gaze. For listeners who don't necessarily understand the concept, can you talk about what it is and what its impact is or can be? The concept is not so much a concept, but a reality and a default in terms of how we decide what's valuable and what's not valuable, how we set the standard of beauty, how we set the standard of intelligence and intellect, the canon of literature, the canon of movies, the academic system, the across the board, every single structure that has a value system has been employed and defined by the white gaze. New Hampshire, as you, of course, know, is a very white state. You mentioned that you were the only black person in your town. And according to the census, about 93% of the state's population is white at this point. At the current point? Right now. Yeah, okay. <laughs> wow. Yeah, yeah, right now. Wow, okay. Um, is is that surprising to you? It's not surprising. It's just it's like when I was when I was writing the book, and you know, my husband's a sociologist, and sort of you know helped me with with stats and looking back over you know kind of records of what the population and demographics were and so on and so forth. And when we discovered that it was like ninety nine point nine percent white when I moved there, I was in fact the one percent, and it was like it's just bizarre. It's just wild, and I and I. Every time I hear a percentage like that of a place of an entire state, I think, what are you, what is, are you kidding? Like, what are you doing? <laughs> What's happening? It's just so, it's just wild to me, especially now as a parent where I just could never imagine raising my child in that kind of environment. When you were 11, you met your birth mother and over time you became almost inseparable from her. Um, not only did you spend time together, but you sought her approval and you put a lot of weight in what she said. But that slowly began to change when you were in college. Uh, can you talk about what you what you began to realize? What I began to realize when I had my first black professor in college was that the way that she talked about race with me, particularly black folks, was racist. <laughs> you know, like I I I would not have understood because I deferred to her on everything, the way that she sort of over-sexualized black men, the way that she kind of co-opted black vernacular, um, the way that she kind of looked at me and decided when or if I would be black and under what terms I could be black, because I was her daughter and she is white. 
Um, and so there was no, I didn't have any agency whatsoever in how I understood or interpreted black culture, much less my part of it, despite really yearning for that. Um, so when I had my first black professor and he not only introduced me to all of these amazing um, black writers and, uh, and artists and, and history, um, but he also really contextualized the, you know, when I told him about some of the things that my birth mother had said to me, he was like, okay, that is racist. Do you still have a relationship with your birth mother? No, I do not. And what about um, your parents and your adoptive family at this point? My mom has been really wonderful and trying and struggling to get to a place where we can keep our relationship because we love each other so much. But it's been very, very hard um, because my dad has not been pleased with the book and or its reception. And, you know, she is his partner. And I understand that. And that is their dynamic. And but yeah, it's been it's been a bit of a struggle. So it's sort of day to day. You know, I wrote the book to excavate the trauma and the memory and to present insight to my family so that they would better understand who I was and what my experience was growing up in in Warner and in their that family and what it was like through my gaze. My hope, my best hope, was that my family would see this as an offering to evolve in their own thinking. I mistakenly believed that they would want to, because why wouldn't they? But so now that I realize and understand that they don't and, and won't, now I'm doing sort of like that work, <laughs> mm, <laughs> um, yeah. figuring out, you know, how to move forward with, you know, having had lost a couple of, of fundamental familial relationships as I knew them. That was cultural critic and author Rebecca Carroll. Her memoir called Surviving the White Gaze came out this year. As Massachusetts aims for net zero carbon emissions by 2050, a growing number of residents are making more sustainable choices in their lives and in their deaths. Green burials have jumped in popularity in recent years, and more cemeteries in the state and across New England are adding it to their list of services. WBUR's Hannah Shinatri has more. She had... A sparkle in her eyes and a magnetic, radiant smile. Nishi Lesser is standing at her mother's grave at Mount Auburn Cemetery in Cambridge. The plot is tucked in a quiet area near the back, surrounded by trees and birds and a carpet of purple flowers just starting to bloom. We fell in love with this area. We loved, you know, the beech trees and the cedars and the wall and the placement of the graves. And we said, we're going we're gonna to do this. Lesser buried her mother here four years ago in a green burial. The only marker is a plaque the size of a hockey puck. You wouldn't know it was a grave unless you were looking for it. She lives on in our hearts and in the way we are with one another in the world. And that's what's important. That's what gets passed on, not, you know, a, a, a marker. The terms green or natural burial are used to describe a burial process that gets rid of as many chemical or manufactured materials as possible. 
That typically means no embalming the body, no concrete grave liner in the ground, a shroud or simple wood casket, and either a small marker or no marker at all. After burial, the site usually looks a bit different, with a mound of dirt that over time evens out into the landscape. If you want a natural burial, that, that's, that's the goal, is decomposition. Regina Harrison is the sales manager here at Mount Auburn. She says the cemetery started offering specific natural burial plots in 2014, both in a move to become a more sustainable institution and because of increasing interest. The first year we had this as an official product, I think we sold 11 spaces. Last fiscal year we sold 27, so it's continuing to grow and we see that that trajectory just continuing onwards and upwards. That trend is reflected across the state and New England. According to data from the advocacy group Green Burial Massachusetts, the number of cemeteries allowing these burials has surged over the past few years. In Massachusetts, green burials are allowed under state law, but not every cemetery or local board of health permits them. The database on the Green Burial Massachusetts website currently lists 25 cemeteries with green burial options. Co-founder of the group, Judith Lorai, says one reason for the growing numbers is the awareness of climate change and carbon footprints. Analysts with the Green Burial Council, a nonprofit that certifies when cemeteries reach specific green burial standards, estimate a conventional burial emits about 250 pounds of carbon dioxide, while green burials emit significantly less. If you've been an environmentalist your whole life, you would want to be an environmentalist in your death. And so green burial does make a lot of sense in that way. And, you know, we really believe that if your, if your body is left to decompose naturally, that um, the, the nutrients that your body provides really feeds the soil. But the environmentally friendly option does come with its own costs. Without embalming, bodies need to be buried more quickly, leaving less time for people to gather before a funeral. And it can make some traditions, like an open casket viewing, difficult, if not impossible. But some argue for a broader definition of green burial, saying that embalming, for example, shouldn't automatically be ruled out. Embalming chemicals have changed. You don't have formaldehyde seeping into the ground like people think. Victor Watson owns and operates Bishop Funeral Home in Worcester. He says while environmental concerns may be a new draw, natural burials have a long tradition in some religions. Watson is Muslim and explains those burials involve no embalming, rarely include caskets, and are completed as quickly after death as possible. Anytime we do an Islamic burial, I mean, it's a green burial. They just, you know, they're not using that term because this is the this is the tradition. So they haven't done it any other way. You know, they didn't, you know, their green burial wasn't a term when that started. For Mishi Lesser, natural burial aligned with both the ancient traditions of her and her mother's Jewish faith and also with the environmental values she shares with her husband. It's something comforting about imagining, you know, sort of life emerging over time on this planet. And then when our time is up, we go back into the earth. At Mount Auburn, Lesser points to a patch of grass just next to her mother. It's where she and her husband will one day lie themselves in natural graves. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Hannah Schnatry. Researchers at the University of New Hampshire are studying new ways to make syrup out of the northern forest. Not from maple trees, but beeches, birches, sycamores, and more.
They want to create a new market for an industry that right now depends on just one kind of tree, making it vulnerable to disease and climate change. From New Hampshire Public Radio's A Climate Reporting Project by Degrees, reporter Annie Ropeek has more. It's the tail end of maple sugaring season, but out in the woods in Lee, other saps are still flowing. UNH researcher David Moore has sensors plugged into a stand of beech trees to measure that sap and the conditions helping produce it. Here we are. You can see I have three trees with sensors here that are all tied back to one data logger. Researchers say monocultures, like the all-maple syrup industry, are more at risk from climate change, pests, and other unpredictable threats. So Moore sees untapped potential in other common species like beech trees. They're found throughout New Hampshire's forests, farms, and sugar bushes, almost like tree weeds. You know, if you can think of some economical use, if you can make syrup from them, then that would be a nice way to actually generate a little profit from them. Moore did that successfully for six years. He ran a business, the Crooked Chimney, which sold syrups like birch and beech at farmers markets and to restaurants. He says it took a while to fine-tune the process. Turns out these species don't like all the same temperatures and equipment as maples. The first year or two were a real learning curve for me. But once I figured it out, um, I started tapping a lot more trees and selling syrup. And it turned out to be pretty good tasting syrup. At his house nearby, in the driveway, he's boiling off some of that syrup in big metal pots. Part of his study aims to find the best processing methods for these more finicky, less tested saps. To show me the results, he produces a pair of tiny glass bottles of syrup and two spoons. I have some birch syrup that I made a few years ago, and then this is beach syrup um, that my friend Mike made in New York. We'll start with the beach. Sure. I'm always interested to hear what people think of it. He gives me a spoonful of the caramel-colored beach syrup. It's got a mild, sweet flavor, almost hard to tell the difference from maple syrup. Then he pours a second spoonful of his own birch syrup, which is darker and thick like molasses. Oh, wow. That one's really different. That's, I mean, that's like almost like a balsamic kind of like, it's almost savory. Yes, I like to use it on, on meat, salmon and red meat. Uh, you can mix it with balsamic vinaigrette and olive oil and make a nice salad dressing. Actually, my, my favorite use is probably ice cream. This kind of syrup is usually sold in little bottles at higher prices. But buyers see the value. Evan Mallet is the chef owner at Black Trumpet Bistro in Portsmouth. He likes tree syrup as a sweetener because it's less processed, more local, and sustainable than cane sugar. He's used birch syrup in cocktails, in braises for venison and boar, and once drizzled on an ostrich loin. Definitely people respond by saying, oh, that's so cool. I had no idea that you could harvest the sap of these other trees as well. So it opens up a conservation conversation, an ecology conversation. Mallet says using unexpected local ingredients like this helps connect people in a magical way to nature, their food system, and a very old and widespread tradition. He mentions sorghum and watermelon syrup in the south and boiled cider in the Adirondacks. Indigenous people and European colonizers traded techniques for getting sugar from trees, and birch syrup is already well established in Alaska and parts of Canada where fewer maples grow. It's kind of remarkable that our sugar maple syrup industry has been so sustainable overall, considering that it's essentially relied on just this one single species. UNH forestry professor Heidi S. Bjornsson oversees David Moore's research. She says supporting more diversity in syrups isn't just interesting, it's critical to the health of the changing forest. 
She says it's clear that spring is getting less predictable, which affects sap flow. We're going to see more variable years in terms of good versus bad sugaring seasons and, and sap yield. Heat waves, droughts, ice storms could all affect maple trees. Vermont's Syrup Association had a short season with low sugar content this year amid warm, dry conditions. On the other hand, freeze-thaw cycles are a big part of what drives sap flow. Those are also on the rise, which could be good for sugaring. New York-based syrup maker Mike Farrell, who made the beach syrup I tasted earlier, says he has a different fear, a specialized pest or disease like emerald ash borer or chestnut blight. It's not the climate change becoming hotter or drier that's going to do it. It's, it's something like Asian longhorn beetle got out and, and wiped out all the maples. That would be devastating. Researchers are trying to convince farmers that the more diverse their forests and products are, the more resilient they'll be. And they hope consumers will start to like the new flavors of these syrups, too. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Annie Ropeek. Coming up, what Fenway Park sounds like with fewer fans in attendance, and what that means for the ballpark's organist. It's next. Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the John Merck Fund, supporting the New England News Collaborative in its coverage of climate and clean energy. Okay, we're back. In most live performances, there's an energetic flow between performers and the audience. The performer gives energy to the crowd, where it's amplified, and the crowd gives energy back, ratcheting up the excitement. But what happens when a pandemic caps the crowd at just 12 or 25 percent? GBH Radio's Judith Kogan has this report from Fenway Park. In normal times, the Red Sox play to a full house of fans. 37,000 people in it together, pulling, pushing, and chanting, reflect the game's intensity as it progresses. Under Massachusetts COVID restrictions, the Fenway crowd until recently had maxed out at a mere 4,600, masked, spread out, and seated in pods of two and four. Stadium rocking sound? Not so much. It's quieter. You don't feel part of a crowd. Michael Howell has been a season ticket holder for 40 years. It's more like a movie theater where you're all watching the same event, but you don't feel a a common purpose like you do when a sports crowd is really excited. So we are trying to see, you know, what works with these smaller crowds. Josh Cantor, the Fenway Park organist, thinks music can help compensate for the loss of people. Are there things that we can exploit to make it a more enjoyable experience for the fans and to energize them to cheer the team on to victory? In normal times, Cantor might have chosen music that's mild or whimsical. This year, he's making an effort to keep my foot on the gas pedal, so to speak. And I am feeling like perhaps that if I just kind of like put the pedal to the metal a little bit more, that will help people just kind of want to get up and dance and shout and shake. But even without that boost from the organ, Cantor says... I saw after the first couple of days that the fans had kind of figured out how to generate some electricity. People found ways to, traditional ways, but also kind of new ways to get riled up. 
The laws of acoustic dynamics help. With relatively few people in the stands, individual voices can be heard. Let's go, Red Sox! Come on, baby! People seated up high and far from the field can yell at players and project so people on the field and other fans can hear them. You know, they might be heckling the pitcher from the other team, and they can do it in a way that, that simply could not be done in a full ballpark. Even in a, in a full ballpark, even if you're sitting down low, it's extremely difficult to project in such a way that the players can actually be distracted by you. Last season, Cantor played for the reduced season of 30 home games. The producers wanted organ in the background for TV and radio broadcasts. But the stands were empty. And that was a strange experience because the building was lifeless. The current crowd may be capped at 9,200, but it's not just any 9,200. Most are season ticket holders. Cantor says they're not leaving until the game is over and they're not leaving happy unless the Red Sox win. They want to be there to see every pitch, to savor Fenway Park, to cheer boisterously for the team. Cantor thinks even the casual fans in the mix may feel a sense of urgency. They may subconsciously have a compulsion to cheer harder and pay attention to the plays because they're not taking for granted how wonderful it is to leave the house and go to Fenway Park. Like the rest of us, they're coming out of the pandemic with a heightened sense of appreciation. And that can translate into electricity. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Judith Kogan. New Hampshire's minor league team, the Fisher Cats, are back in action in Manchester after last year's season was canceled. Tyler Murray is the broadcast voice of the Fisher Cats. He says he's been looking forward to calling the play-by-play for the first time again. Well, you know, it's more than just the return of baseball. I mean, a Fisher Cats game is about the return of summer, warm weather, enjoying the outdoors. It's just been so tough. 2020 summer went by in the blink of an eye. It felt like we didn't really get to do anything. Uh, So uh, baseball season being back in New Hampshire, it it feels like a whole lot more than just uh, some of the best, you know, prospects in the game coming out to show off their talents and make it to the big leagues. It really feels like uh, just a return to normalcy and a a long overdue reward for all the challenges of the last 12 plus months. Thanks to New Hampshire Public Radio's Todd Bookman for that tape. We've got some news for you. Next week will be our final episode of the show. After five years, we're sunsetting next as the New England News Collaborative heads into a new chapter. Because next is all about New England, how it's changing and what it means to us, we want to get your thoughts in our final show. What do you love about living in or visiting this region? What makes New England unique? Leave a comment at 860-275-7595. Again, 860-275-7595. You can also email us at next at ctpublic.org. One more time, that's next at ctpublic.org. And we'll be back next week for one last goodbye. 
Next is produced by me, Morgan Springer, and Lily Tyson. Vanessa De La Torre is our executive editor. The executive producer is Katie Talarski. The music you hear on Next is by musicians in New England. If you want to know who you heard today, just visit our show page at nextnewengland.org. The New England News Collaborative is powered by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, Connecticut Public Radio, Vermont Public Radio, New Hampshire Public Radio, Maine Public Radio, New England Public Media, CAI, WBUR, WSHU, GBH, and the Public's Radio. 